Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 374th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Diane Nolan. Diane is the managing partner of Argent Bridge Advisors, a hybrid advisory firm based in Vienna, Virginia, that oversees $500 million in asset center management for 350 client households. What's unique about Diane, though, is how she has been able to both expand the marketing of her firm and its profitability by taking the divorce financial planning work that historically was a bit of a loss leader service to the business and turn it into a positive revenue diversifier by getting clear about the value that Diane's divorce clients really were already receiving and getting more focused about actually charging for all the time that she and her team were spending with and behalf of their clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Diane became conscious about the service offerings of the firm, the impact it had on clients over the years, and how that realization has allowed Argent Bridge to start to more accurately bill for the actual time spent with each and every client, how sticking to with the client through their divorce and transitioning into a post-divorce financial planning offering has become a core growth pipeline for Argent Bridge to establish new client relationships. And how staying focused on their coaching with, advocating for, and providing services to the divorce community has just further increased their referability in the divorce niche, further accelerating the growth of their pipeline to create more long-term post-divorce AUM clients as well. We also talk about Diane's transition from a firm that had no formality to partnership or a path to ownership to establishing one for herself in which every partner has a seat at the table and a say in every one of the so-called 50-year long-term decisions facing the firm. Diane's realization that if you get clear on your value and can communicate it clearly to both new and even existing clients, they don't mind paying for it, even if they haven't been before. And how through the growth of her career, Diane came to the realization that she didn't have to know it all. She just needed to know who to go to for the answers that her clients were seeking. And be certain to listen to the end where Diane shares how it was sitting down with a new young client and discovering that she knew far more than the client and far more than even she realized that finally allowed herself to believe it. How Diane has focused more on client relationships and really knowing each client personally than trying to just be the most knowledgeable about the industry's products and instead just making sure she knew the people to ask if she needed more product answers. And how Diane ultimately discovered that building her own advisory business wasn't as complicated as she'd anticipated it being due to the team she'd already built around her that came with her when she was ready to get started on her own. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Diane Nolan. Welcome, Diane Nolan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate being here. I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm 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 so thankful you're you're willing to join us today and and share a little bit of the the journey that you've had around building your firm as i sort of think of it, like scaling up your your niche there's you know things that we do when we get started in trying to find sort of our our niche our specialization whatever the thing is we're going to go after and 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 be good at in the advisor world but then it, it, it is or like if it works when it works then things kind of get messier in some different ways like it gets bigger and now there's more advisors and you have to figure out like how to train them and get them up to speed to do it the way that you do it and 
the business gets more complex. So there's more people on board now. And like, you have to actually figure out systems and process that we didn't really have to do when it was just us, but it matters a lot more when there's multiple people. And I know you've, you've lived this journey of what it's like as the, the, the firm really begins to scale beyond the, the individual expertise that you start out with. And you have to do this across multiple advisors, multiple team members to reach more, more clients for those of us that have that passion to serve and have to keep adding more clients to, to, to serve and help more people. So I just, I'm, I appreciate your willingness to, to join us today and talk a little bit about what that kind of scaling up your expertise beyond yourself journey looks like. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to sharing. So I, I think to get started, uh, uh, if you could just tell us about your advisory firm as it exists today, like let's just understand the business as it is, and then we can talk a little bit about kind of the the growth journey and the path in getting in getting here. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, the firm is Argent Bridge Advisors. We are thirteen in total. Uh, not all advisors. The team is uh, our focus is largely women women who manage the money for the family, women who are divorced or widowed or never married, but they're in control of the finances. Um, The firm, we have six financial advisors, five of them women. We have uh, a dedicated portfolio manager and an investment committee. We have a support team, a fantastic support team with an operations manager and director of client service, a paraplanner, uh, we have, I have a new hire, an advisor who joined us that will be working with our client's children. We call her our next gen advisor, advisor. Um, I don't think I left anybody out. <laughs> so the, the team has, we have traditional financial planning practice and we have divorce financial planning that I would call the niche. Uh, and the, we now have six certified divorce financial analysts and, um, the focus for that team is largely working as a referral from an attorney to work with the client at the point that they are working through the division of assets. So uh, I did that for a long time. I spend some time on that, but far less now that we have a team of advisors that are are handling the divorce financial planning. So we have we call that the, the divorce team. And then we have traditional financial planning. Can you share a little bit more? Just I thought you made an interesting distinction there that we have financial planners and we have divorce financial planners. Like these are these are kind of different categories. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what the difference is between the two? Because I feel like there's a lot of advisors that would say, like, well, I I'm a, I'm a trained financial planner. I study my CFP marks. I can research things. Like if a client has some divorce stuff, I can talk to them about divorce stuff. Like what's right. the difference between a financial planner who does research on a client's divorce need because we yeah, analyze my needs and, and provide responses versus like I'm a divorce financial planner. Right. So that, again, different certification, um, different approach. The the point that someone's getting divorced, there's a couple of reasons why an attorney might refer a client. They either have never been involved in the family's finances, so they don't know. They have to build their own budget, especially if you're the spouse that's asking for spousal support. You have to have an understanding of your budget, and you have to share that budget because 
you're asking, they're asking you to prove that you need this support. So understanding the finances, creating a budget, that's one reason that we get involved. It's often um, so the first step. Interesting. This, that's a, a, a striking framing to me. So in, in the divorce context, we're separating, I'm a spouse who has a support need because I'm, I'm not the primary earner. Mm-hmm. I have to there needs to be a budget to substantiate what the what the support need is and if I was not necessarily as financially sophisticated of a spouse I just really might not be able to build an effective budget to advocate for the amount of dollars I need in support. Exactly. Exactly. And the and that that could come that might look different if you the same applies but you believe your uh your need is greater or you're entitled to more and Sometimes what we're doing is educating the client that there's the pot is only so big. So you you might think that you need ten thousand dollars a month to support your lifestyle, but you're you're not going to be receiving ten thousand. So how do we help you um, create a realistic budget for what your life looks like when this is all over? So the, uh, budgeting is a big part of divorce financial planning, and yes, any CFP could do that. But but one of the things that we do is help define what it's going to look like after the marriage ends. So now all of a sudden you might need daycare and you haven't had that need before because you were a stay-at-home mom and you're going back to work. Uh, you you know, might need someone to take care of the lawn. You might need, you know, a handyman. You, you have services that you didn't require when you were together. So so these are the kind of things, just thoughtful discussion around what the budget's going to look like and, and budget planning and creating a budget is a big part of uh, the first step really, in the divorce financial planning. And then where it gets more complicated, when when one party has restricted stock or stock options or a deferred comp plan, people, people barely understand those when they're entitled to them, let alone be the spouse who's not in the corporation, doesn't understand all these benefits, and whether or not there's that's marital or separate property. Like we, we spend a lot of time on that as well. The complicated financial assets as well as who owns what at what point did it become marital so there's assets and then there's this budget piece those are those are the big parts of divorce financial planning so so take us back for a moment to mm-hmm. team structure i just want to make sure i understand the yeah. the proverbial seats on the on, on the bus here so you said six six advisors and is right, that so we, do you include yourself in that six or six yes. and you? Six okay. including me. Okay. Then a portfolio manager uh yes. who's handling the the uh the investment side of things. Your yes. advisor who's focused on next generation. Is that separate from the six or one of yes, the Yes, that's separate from the six. Okay. And then uh so that that takes us to eight. So then remaining four or five, I think you said 13 team members are operations and support roles. Marketing, operating support, paraplanner. Yes. Okay. Market. Okay. So, uh, so one, one in marketing, one, one who's a paraplanner. And then I, I guess that leaves us three that are uh, operations support directly. Correct. Okay. Okay. I have three associate partners. Three of the four of us are financial advisors, and the fourth is the portfolio manager that I mentioned, Joe. Okay. 
Okay. And and we, that was it. At the beginning, it was just, uh, frankly, it was just three of the four of us that started the firm. And but within a month, the fourth had joined us. Right. Um, and and at that time, when we started, we still were very much involved in divorce financial planning and traditional financial planning. Um, but we were doing all that work. So the, the we were doing both traditional financial planning and divorce financial planning. Uh, three advisors. So it made up part of every day to do, you know, traditional work with your clients as well as this work with uh, clients that are engaging us for divorce financial planning services. So now help us understand the, uh, the, the size of the client base that you're working with. I don't know if you measure by number of clients or assets or management or revenue or, or some combination of those, but, but help us understand uh, sort of volume and size of clients being yes. served. So we work with about 350 families. We have, we just passed over 500 million in assets in 2023. Um, Divorce financial planning clients, that's a different, we don't consider them in the families, the divorce financial planning clients that, and we're compensated based on AUM for the traditional financial planning clients. Divorce financial planning clients are, pay us on an hourly basis. So that's fee revenue. That's just based on the hours that we work on the divorce financial planning. So that's a separate source of revenue. So, so when you talk about 350 families and 500 million, that's, that is not including the divorce clients because they sit in like a, a separate sleeve, separate offering of the business. Correct. Okay. And, and what are, what are, I guess I'm also discouraged, like what are typical hourly rates when you're doing divorce work? So the divorce financial planning is $400 an hour. Um, and we unless the paraplanner is adding adding data, we we use a specific software called Family Law Software. If they're putting information in about budgets and assets, et cetera, that's at one hundred and fifty dollars an hour for the paraplanner. So that's a traditional um, engagement with the client that looks like a financial planning engagement, let's say, but rather than a flat fee, it's based on uh, an hourly rate. And what's the typical? Uh, like like size or scope of a of a divorce project like that like for uh, those who aren't familiar I mean question. this is four hundred dollars an hour and it's going to be two or three hours of work or four hundred dollars an hour and this is like a thirty to fifty hour project no and 12, yeah twelve great. to twenty thousand dollar engagement and it could really it, it can really depend uh, we've had some really complicated uh, cases where there's been a lot of uh, research done a lot of time spent on sorting out the finances, but largely I'd say it's probably five hours. Maybe a, as a matter of fact, we, we have a retainer that's for the first five hours because that's not uncommon for it to be about a five hour. Um, and attorneys like that we're doing that part. Um, they don't mind that they're not being billed, billing, you know, they're not billable hours for the financial piece. We try to keep that as efficient as possible. So I think because of our knowledge, it actually may cost the client less than if, say, the attorney or the para, paralegal was doing the work. How much of the revenue of the business is the divorce practice versus this 
500 million AUM base for 350 families. It's relatively small. Like we, the divorce financial planning, as I said, even five years ago was really just, uh, my partner Cecile and I doing all of the divorce financial planning and then working with those clients post-divorce and then working with them traditional financial planning. Um, But we decided in 22 that we were going to get really intentional about the growth of alternative sources of revenue. And knowing that divorce financial planning was something that we did well and something that we could... um, that we could spend more time on if we had more time or more people to do the work, um, that, that that could be its own standalone revenue source. So I would say the revenue is under, right now, under 10%. We're looking to make it about 10% of our revenue in 2024. Uh, but that's been, that's over a very short period of time. Like maybe in uh, 15 months, we got it, we got it to that place. So I think it has, a, we have a lot of room for growth there. So what, I mean, what was it previously? Uh, I'm just trying to visualize how much this shifted. Yeah. So my focus originally when we did the divorce financial planning, yes, it was to collect the, to be compensated for time that, that made perfect sense. But what I liked was being an advocate for someone, it was extremely rewarding work. And then that, that, client that I worked with in the divorce becoming a traditional financial planning AUM client. So it was sort of a a very easy transition. So it started with this work that I felt was important and helpful, but more importantly, that became a client. So the, the source of revenue from hourly billing was not my focus when we started working on divorce financial planning. It was really to have to do that work and then have that person become a client, hopefully for life, um, because we worked so hard to get what was an equitable distribution for that person. And now we get to help that person grow it from there or make some meaningful impact on how this is all going to be managed going forward. You know, it's not uncommon when someone gets divorced that somebody, you know, not only do they decide who gets what friends, they decide who gets the CPA, who gets the financial advisor, right? So we, we, it was a very easy transition when doing divorce financial planning into a traditional financial planning client. So that was the focus for a long time until we realized like how much more time we were spending on these very complicated divorce cases. And we're, that's sort of, again, light bulb went off. We, we can make revenue that way too. It doesn't just have to be the lead in to a great financial planning client. It can actually be a standalone revenue source. Probably sounds silly that we thought about it so far down the line, but because I'd been doing the divorce financial planning for uh, almost 20 years now. So uh, it's only been in the last five years that I'd say that it was growing to be this profitable separate revenue source. Oh, you were doing the divorce work because it was bringing in uh uh developing relationships with the clients and bringing in clients. The, the shift has been Hey, we're really darn good at the divorce stuff. Like, we're going to charge our full rate and value, and actually, like, make that a additional revenue stream for the business. That's it, Michael, one hundred percent. And as a result of that, then we started looking like who could support us in this work. Uh, and an attorney I know asked if I would mentor a young divorce financial analyst uh, because she's wildly. Uh, productive and smart and and super analytical, but she may need some guidance in terms of the client relationships and that sort of thing. So uh, 
and her Alina, one of our advisors. She she has a, a huge corporate banking background. She's a CFA, extremely smart, very analytical. She just brings a whole new level of analysis to this divorce financial planning, like to the dollar. Uh, she, separate property tracing has come to a new level by having her. So, so now, yes, she's she may be on a case that takes far more than five hours. I'm probably doing the uh, cases that are maybe they're the high dollar cases, but they're most they're simple. They're not overly complicated. It's about just dividing marital resources and who keeps the home, she's digging down into what percentage of that 401k or TSP was separate property and how did it grow before it ever became marital and how do we divide this accurately? So it just became a whole new level of analysis and and um, and, and deeper consulting relationship uh, when we added the additional CDFA. So what was different previously like were you not charging for it were you charging yeah we weren't charging enough <laughs> frankly we weren't charging we weren't we were not we have a as you said you you start to build out the niche and you have much more need for things like uh clockify and tracking the time you're actually yeah. spending on that uh, a really great invoicing system advice pay to pay using a credit card you know the, all of these things didn't exist when we started we were just Hoping that we, you know, accounting for time that was spent on just the put it, data entry and sitting with the client. It was, it wasn't, it, it the case. And again, maybe we attract what we're good at. We, I just didn't have the complexity in some of these cases that we now get. So I, I want to make sure I just that I understand what what shifted though. Was it like you just literally weren't charging for people, and you said now we're going to bill it? Was it? You were charging like $150 an hour and said, no, wait, we're valuable enough. We should be charging $400 an hour. Was it something else? Like what? Um, what we were always charging. We were charging the same. I would say what changed was, yeah, a really um, intentional uh, documenting of the time and the deliverables Mm. and the service. We, We just got really detailed about... The, uh, from the start of the relationship, rather, I really do think it was, yeah, we, we put the system in place. We made it a um, its own separate little growth engine. And for that, you then need to pay attention to the time you're spending there, the people that are spending time on that, the, um, you know, the letters of engagement are in place, the, the, the retainer's been collected. We started getting really... Um, strict with ourselves about, okay, I'm not going to start that until someone engages. And then I'm not going to start that they are committed, but they haven't paid the retainer. We're going to make sure that gets paid before we start doing any work. It sounds silly that we would be talking like that, but that's that's what happens. You, you, we wanted so much to help these people for so long that we weren't paying attention to just those little organizational elements of the relationship. Which meant in, uh, in, in essence you you know you might have billed the client for 5 hours of work but the truth was you did 8 10 12 15 Correct. hours of That's actual right. time on it which meant it really wasn't very profitable not cuz you weren't charging a a reasonable hourly rate but because you weren't really billing for all the time that you were spending on it That's correct That's correct So so was that awkward to 
change? Like just when you, <laughs> yeah, that's just, it. <laughs> like when, when you're not when you're not used to saying like, well, you know, I spend 15 minutes on that, and I gotta, I gotta, I gotta add that to your your bill. That's gotta be hard to start thinking in that mindset. I have to say, it's probably not understanding our value because there's no awkwardness. People will willingly pay it if you're helping to educate them and help them see what they're, you know, in that, in an example of this separate property tracing, uh, Alina, one of our advisors created that the client ended up with $176,000 of additional retirement assets through separate property tracing that they would never have received. So all of a sudden you're like, uh, maybe again, light bulb goes off. Hey, this is very valuable work. This can mean a, a meaningful difference to the clients. Why are we underselling ourselves? Why are we not considering every um, minute that we spend on this? And um, and the clients appreciate it. So no, we got no pushback. It was our own sort of our own limiting belief that this was going to be helpful. And then in the end, this is going to become a financial planning client. We just sped too far into the what the relationship will become, not where we were. E- even though n- notably, like your, it sounds like you still live in a world where about ninety percent of the revenue is the clients that ultimately do come from the relationship that gets built when you're doing the the divorce uh, support works. I, I I almost think of it a frame of of like your your. You're you're providing a service that helps you establish the relationship to get along to get a long term relationship, which is sort of the right. like the loss leader invest into the relationship approach that m- many of us, most of us, have taken for for most That's of our right. careers. The difference just like you're you're getting paid for that stage of marketing because you really provide right. meaningful value in that stage, so you can bill for it. Uh, so you 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 get to bill people for the privilege of also building a relationship with them in service that eventually ends up often turning them into longer term clients as well. Precisely. And I would say, because we now have two dedicated divorce financial analysts, they're paid based on their hourly revenue, that what they're billing. So, you know, it was easy for my partner and I to say, well, we're going to do this work and then we're going to get this great financial planning client at the end. But this uh, divorce financial analysts, their revenue is driven by the hours that they that they bill, not based on AUM. So it it, it became an even more oh. intentional approach so, to billing. So from their perspective, or I guess so from your perspective, it's easy to kind of me- mentally slough off billing every last increment because hey at the end of the day if 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 this is going to turn into a million plus dollar clients like do I really need to track down that that last 30 minutes I spent on their That's on right. on their issue but when you've got a segment of the team whose sole role is doing that and their compensation is tied to the hours they want to bill every hour they legitimately can and i have to say like that um i i think we always found that that the work was really valuable and I just don't think we paused to say to until we made it this we it was the first of what we hope to be multiple avenues of alternative revenue sources. It just was the most obvious and the easiest to um, develop because we were already doing that work. 
that would be like, you know, one, one spinning plate. I'd love another spinning plate and another, you know, I want, I want it to be something more than just, uh, that one, that one separate niche. I think we'll always have at the core, the AUM that we manage, the clients that we have, uh, you know, we're, we're referral based, like many of the advisors you spoke with. I mean, our, our clients, we're not trying to cast a wide net. We have client referrals um, and that's very valuable and being referable is really important to us and intentional, but um, we continue what, what to try to mean? raise the bar. What does that mean for you to be very referable? Well, we have, um, I guess through coaching, through, we, we, we've, we've done a lot of the things that I'm sure many people out there did in terms of segmenting clients and the amount of time and attention you give your best clients, the, um, the services that you offer, making, making people feel like they're educated and that they're, that they're informed that they're comfortable and confident, like the, the whole thing that for us, the team environment is, is something that we focus on with clients from, from the point that they're considering us. I think each one of the team members have different strengths. We make sure we, we do a lot of visuals about, you know, meet the team. We, we, we have something that we share about the financial planning journey. We have something that we share about uh, uh, our, our, the director of client service, Rasha, will send her first email to a client to explain who she is and what her role is in the process. And then same for Sierra, our operations manager. She'll explain her role. So we're, we, we have a lot of communication that goes out early on to just describe um, the different strengths of the team and who's going to be helping and why they're helping. Um, so it makes that very easy to have m- multiple advisors yeah. and multiple support people in one relationship. Wait, I'm 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 intrigued by this kind of client onboarding communication sequence. Like you said, yes. a lot of things are like meet the, <laughs> meet the team in your journey and and meet Rasha and meet Sarah. Can can you walk us through that a little bit further? Like just sure. you know, I'm, I'm coming on board as a new client. I've just signed the packet. Uh, like, what is this onboarding sequence? Like, what what do I get when? Okay. So, well, before you ever become a client, uh, the first conversation might be with a relationship manager, one of our advisors. Her name is Elise Finney. Elise is an extremely uh, warm, social person. She's going to just have a conversation about the firm. It's really easy when it's not you saying it. It doesn't come across as, look at what we've done. Look how great we are. It's somebody within the team saying, this is a special place. When you come, we're going to, you know, we're going to send you a map. Exactly. We have valet parking, but here's where you'd park if you want to park your own car. And we're, we're going to make sure that you know exactly what to expect when you come in the door. Here's some questions to be thinking about, that sort of thing. She has her own conversation with the client just for 10 minutes or so. And then we send out, um, when the before the client comes, uh, something that describes the financial planning process, just a little visual about the journey of financial planning, as well as meet the team. And it's sort of an org chart, it, it, what everybody does and who they are. Um, then the client is it, comes is in. It, is, the, is the meet the team everybody in the firm? Like just, yes, is this, it's it absolutely It doesn't just everybody. describe like, here's the two or three people you're going to interact with primarily. It's It's the firm. 
it's the firm because they are going to meet everybody. They're not going to, they may have primary interaction with a few people, but they're going to meet everybody in the, in the firm. Uh, if they're live in the office and others are in, then, then they're going to, inter- we're going to introduce the, the potential client around or over the course of the onboarding, they're going to meet everybody. Emily's our business manager. She's going to be scheduling the next meeting. So there's just a reason for everybody to be in touch. And, and how much, I asked, like how much detail is, is on this meet the team? Cause I'm just feeling like you've got, you've got 13 people, a, like a picture and a couple of paragraphs and like, just yeah, not even like paragraphs, not even paragraphs, page just document wrong. really quickly. That's why, <laughs> that's why I'm asking. Like you could, you, this could get really long, really quickly. Yeah, you're right. No, it's, <laughs> it's really just a one page document and it does have the pictures. Okay. So they're familiar and the pictures, you know, so they're, they're going to get to know them. So this is like picture, title them. and a sentence of what they yes, do. Yes, that's that kind exactly of it. That's okay. exactly right. Okay. That's the theme, team and meet, meeting the team and understanding what differentiates us is, is very much that, I mean, that we've got this, this team, uh, everyone having their own unique abilities. So okay. there's, there's that, you know, they've, they've understood what it's going to look like to come in and what's going to happen. We're going to do an intake. If the client, if we agree they're a good fit and they, they're, and they agree we're a good fit, then we're going to send off then enter our ops manager, Sierra, who's going to send off our letter of engagement and tell them what to expect next. Uh, next, they hear from our paraplanner to say, here's e-money and here's how you get in and here's the information we need you to share in advance and so on. So uh, what else is there? Like, I, I, I just, I'm so fascinated by like all the different <laughs> pieces that they're, that they're so getting. That's the, yeah, so that's the, so... We, we have different workflows. We, we use Salesforce as our tool for um, uh, our CRM. And okay. within Salesforce, there's workflows. So we have one that is a workflow that is uh, from interest to being a prospect. That's a collection of things, as I said, the, okay. the emails, the introductions, and so on. And then we have one from onboarding to clients. So that's a different set. It might be... Um, Again, we're pretty visual. There could be a visual about how we discern what how, what we're going to do in the way of uh, rebalancing the portfolio. It, not specifics, but like here's our filter. And again, I know many people use this, but we try to educate about here's what we might be doing differently when we get to the point of asset management. Before that, if, when we're when we're creating the plan, it's going to be our pair planner saying, as I said, here's here's how to input this information into e-money. Here's why we need this information. Uh, Once it's shared and we create our plan, the first meeting we have after intake is to go through our financial plan, which is largely driven by uh, analysis that we do through e-money. And then at the end of that, we're going to share some observations about how we fund the plan. That's something I think we've said for a long time to clients. Your assets aren't the plan. Your assets are funding the plan. So then we talk plan and then we get to how we might do things differently in terms of the assets that they have, you know, the, the decision that maybe they need to save more, work longer, spend, they could spend more there, you know, that they're going to leave a huge legacy. All of these things are starting to frame this um, discussion with the clients about how we plan with them going forward. When they see it all in one place, all of a sudden, they're understanding, right? You know what that what that means. So, 
uh, how how quick in succession does does all of this come? Uh, so as I'm trying to visualize like this onboarding and the emails and first meeting, are they getting like an email from Sarah on Monday and then the paraplanner on Tuesday and then someone else on Wednesday? And it's like it's oh. it's a daily sequence or does this stretch out over weeks? It, you uh, know, each person ch- ticks off what they've done and then it becomes an activity for the next person. So however long that takes, let's say oh. to connect with the client, might might have taken a few days to have a conversation and get a letter of engagement oh. off. And then So Sierra- this isn't just a like, an, an automated email sequence. This is literally like, Sarah, it's your turn to send the the email to start onboarding them. And then Sarah checks off her box that it's done. That's and right. now, and now it goes off to the para planner. That's like, now you have a task waiting. Exactly. For you right. To do that's the outreach, exactly. the client. So there, this isn't an automated sequence. This is a workflow of it's your turn to send the new clients, the email explaining what you do. It's your turn to send it for which I'm going to guess they probably have like a kind of templated thing that they adapt exactly. for, for each exactly. client circumstance, but it's not, it's not an automation sequence. It's a, it's a workflow for each. Precisely. Person. We spent a lot of time on workflows a couple of years ago to make sure we got every aspect of that down. And like I said, multiple workflows. So from the point that they, from the interest to being a genuine prospect, there's a workflow and then they've come in and we've had an intake and we've decided we're moving forward. Then there's an onboarding to client and so on. Um, so, and again, and each time it's a task, you complete your task and then the next person sees their task. So are, are you like Salesforce workflow inclined? Like where did you, where when did we, all these come from to get these built? We created them all, and it, I would say that was that was a huge team effort. Frankly, here's what I do. Here's what I do. It just became <laughs> it just became all of us in a room deciding how we're going to go about uh, creating these workflows, who does what, and in what order. Um, and we use Salesforce because that's a requirement of our broker dealer RIA with his uh, triad and that's there. We also communicate with them and their back office through Salesforce for clients. So it was, it was the tool that we were given and then we learned how to make that tool work um, for our needs and that the workflows were a big part of that. And then who actually programs them into, into Our business manager uh, put them in. You'd mentioned earlier that, you in in part of being referable, you also try to do some client segmentation, invest a little bit more into into top clients. So, can you share a little bit more about what how you actually segment clients, like how you decide sure. uh, the the way this works, and what what cha- what actually changes from one segment to another? We got some great coaching some years back about what makes an A client, if you will. So we just use ABC and and it was not obviously just the money they manage. For a long time, that's in, in the old firm, that's how we did it, based on AUM only. And that would drive the service level for that client. But, but we got a great matrix uh, from a coach a while back that included things like, um, do they refer? Do we like working with them? Maybe these are obvious to other people, but we, we weren't we weren't screening our clients based on this information, but it uh, do they do they have more assets? Meaning, 
they're going to retire one day with a big 401k roller. So future opportunities was a part of that. And each one of those were given a value. And then based on the rating at the end with, with whether, do they have family, uh, are they influential people? There are different, just a, there's probably a dozen things that we look at and give each one a score of 10. And based on their total score is what's driving A, B, or C. Okay. An example of a C client, they could have as much money as an A client, but they are largely in distribution mode. They're sort of a small circle. <clears throat> Excuse me. They Maybe they don't have many people in their lives. Uh, maybe they aren't really active in the community. There could be a whole myriad of reasons why somebody could have just as much money but not be ranked the same way as a, a – and so, reverse, somebody with small with fewer assets but is extremely um, – uh, active in the community and they've referred a number of clients and we even have our, we keep a separate summary of the relationship tree and what has that meant to the firm in terms of assets, AUM by referrer. And that's oh. important to that when if let's say that client has a couple million dollars, but the, the relationship and everyone they've referred friends and family has 15 million. We're going to treat them very differently than just someone who has, we happen to manage a million dollars for them. So do you have some target of how many clients are going to be in each tier? Because I'm cognizant just when you put like a dozen different things and then give each of them a score. I mean, you're, you're going to end out with a range of scores, but then at some point you have to decide like what's the, yeah. what's the threshold for a, B, a, B, and yes. C. Yes. I should say of that scoring process, how much we manage is a big part of the score. So it does start sure, with sure. that, but then there are other variables. And and we really, as it turns out, our very best, our A plus, if you will, is probably less than 20 clients. It, it takes a lot to be, to, to be at that level. And at that level, you know, again, we, we have many more communications. We have some you know, unique events that we do just for those clients and they're, and we're, um, I, I mean, I just think we take very special care of those very biggest clients. They've taken, they've taken a great interest in our firm too. So it's easy to do. So, um, uh, so, so can you share a little bit more then about what, like, what do you do that's different for, a plus versus A. Is there actually like an A plus and an A? It's so like A plus A, there is. Yeah. B, a plus, C. Like what? A plus might only be, again, I might have missed, it might have been less than 10. A and sure. A plus together is probably only 25 households. Um, so yes. Okay. Every, so a, a is a pretty elite echelon for you. So you said earlier 300, 350 clients. So an, an A threshold for you, because I've seen some firms like, 50% of our clients are A's and because uh, uh, no, we love everyone <laughs> and, and a relatively small percentage are, 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 are B's and even fewer are C's. For yours, like A, A is a special place. Like if we're talking 20 clients out of 350, this is like, this is our top 5% of clients level. Precisely. Okay. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, very small group of A, uh, a larger group of B, but our, I would say we're the reverse, 50% are C. Um, and not because we don't value them or that they're not, it's just, it, it's based on all those factors that I, uh, you know, that I shared some of um, that 
so every, all clients get certain communication like newsletters. And when we do, you know, state of the market, maybe we'd invite somebody with our portfolio manager. He does uh, an education session. Um, you said they used to be in person and, and, uh, and now they're, um, webinars. And so everyone gets invited to certain things. And then those top clients get invited to special things. Uh, like we did a champagne tasting or a bourbon tasting. It doesn't always have to do with alcohol. <laughs> Maybe we've done something in the community. We did some, we did a, um, an event once with this organization in Vienna, Virginia called Rustic Love. They paint hearts on signs. I don't know if you've seen them in the Metro DC area, but if you ever see one in a yard, it's a, um, it's a not-for-profit organization uh, that is, that sells these signs for, uh, for the work they do in their nonprofit. So we went out with clients and we painted these signs and then had a big lunch afterwards. So just unique things, things we can think of that might be fun or interesting. We're doing Galentine's the day before Valentine's day. We're doing a luncheon, uh, at a local restaurant for some of our, um, some women attorneys and divorcees and widows that we work with. Things like that, just things that are unique. We don't, everyone doesn't get invited to everything, just special events for certain clients. So I know for some advisors, there's a big fear and concern around special things for for top clients, particularly when they're event-based, because they're worried that at some point, you know, a client is going to say to another client, like, oh, I'm... I'm going to Diane's bourbon tasting next week. Are you going to be there? And they go yeah. like, oh, really? I wasn't invited. I never heard about a bourbon tasting. Uh, well, and yeah, now we... there's implied awkwardness. Like, is that <laughs> is that a thing for you? Is that not a thing? Is this it's, another it's, one of these, like it's in our heads, but it doesn't manifest in practice? I, I think it is largely in our heads. But I would say um, when we when we look at our our client relationship tree, we know who might want to be included, even if they aren't, you know, we, we, we try to be sensitive to that where we know that that's been a, an issue in the past, but largely I would say it's in our heads. I, I think clients come to unique things and they don't say, were you invited? I don't, I, I, you know, if that's happening, anything, we're not aware because of Because if you told them it's a unique thing, they maybe sort of understand not everyone's invited and they don't go flaunting around that they're going to a thing that you might not be going to. Yes. Yeah. I think that's part of it too. I, I don't even know that we've had to work on it that hard. I can think of one time in all of this time that we had a, a fireproof bag that we sent out to certain clients be, to keep their estate documents in and it was branded, but it was, you know, it was pretty, ex the fireproof bags are kind of expensive. So we sent it out to a certain group and then we heard from a friend she literally called and said, why didn't I get one of those bags? So we sent her one. I mean, that was no big deal. So other than that fireproof bag situation, I, I don't think I've ever had an issue where a client has been offended or somebody shared that a client was offended because they weren't included. Honestly, my big takeaway is just apparently fireproof bags are <laughs> literally like con referable conversations. Like that... Or you made that only came back to you because they were talking about it that's with your right. friend. Like <laughs> that's what pe that's what clients talk about. Okay. Um duly noted, I need to escalate the relative priority of fireproof 
estate document bags. Yes. Apparently, that generates actual conversation amongst clients and prospects with it each certainly other. Did. It certainly did. T- today, I learned. Uh, so, so I am I am intrigued by this framing that your A tier is really really narrow. And your C tier is is really large. I think you said like more than half the clients fall there. So that's correct. Yeah, I'm curious to understand more about that that tier because for some firms the C tier is, for lack of a better term, like the bread and butter clients. This is the core of our business. We serve them well. They're profitable to serve. We do our thing. And for other firms, the C tier is basically a euphemism for. These are clients who are too small, not profitable. We kind of have to minimize our services to them or we're going to lose more money on them, but we don't really want to let them go. So we're going to not note them as a C tier to kind of recognize don't spend too much money because we're probably losing money on these, but we don't want to let them go. So which version of C tier is this? I I would say these are valuable. No, I think it's the... the our view of that, those C clients are extremely valuable. And we don't have anybody in the firm at this moment, I could say, that we say, oh, we wish we could just sell them off or get rid of them. And I don't know if that's because, again, we established the new firm five years ago and and the clients that came and the clients that we've been really intentional intentional about who we're attracting or who we want to work with from that point forward. So I would say, no, the C's are, are valuable. They're bread and butter, as you said, but um, they just don't need as much either. You know, the, maybe the assets aren't all that complicated. Maybe they aren't haven't retired yet. Maybe we haven't done a lot of, you know, uh, complicated planning where they need, where they have a lot of moving parts. It's relatively simple. It doesn't mean it isn't important. We want to educate them. We have meetings with them once a year. We're, we're staying in front of them um, more often if something's going on in their lives, but no less than once a year. I feel like we're giving them um, uh, that we have good relationships and we are servicing them in a way that's consistent with what they need. That's just all they need at the moment. So, do you have like asset minimums or, or fee minimums in place just to to try to maintain this pricing threshold where you need it to be? Yeah, we are not with our broker dealer. We're not allowed to do a fee minimum, although we'd love to do that. But we do have a, an asset management minimum of a million dollars. Though we're we're pretty, you know, we we're pretty strict about that. Except if a client says, "I want you to work with my son. I want you to work with my neighbor." We're going to do that no matter what because they were they asked that of us. But um, I would say the smallest of clients are still probably have several hundred thousand dollars. They're just somebody that our clients know. And that's probably another reason why we could never envision saying, well, we're going to lop off this end of the book because somebody knows somebody that's important to the business. Yeah. And, and if I heard correctly in that, in that discussion as well, um, uh, you made a transition a few years ago in, in changing firms. And it sounds like part of the transition was, we'll call them the quote le- legacy clients that we took on in the early years that may or may not be the be the best economic fit for the business at this point you just didn't bring them when you made the change yeah i mean i've um 
So like you don't you don't have them on the book to have to make they, adjustments now because they didn't right. come with you when you made they, the change. We didn't we didn't invite or even if they if we if we we have a real challenge with that. Something we're trying to work out, and that is when someone isn't a good fit for the firm, who has a firm? Where could we comfortably refer them to? We have a few situations like that with very small divorce financial planning clients. We have another divorce financial planner within a different firm that we can refer to, but we don't have that with the traditional financial planning clients. We're always looking for uh, advisors that we meet that might be, oh, that sounds like they have a similar approach. And so we're, we're looking for that all the time. We, we want to make sure that that person's taken care of. We just don't, that's not scalable for us to take everybody. Right. So out of curiosity, who was the, the coach that helped you visualize and get all this set in place? Well, I, coaching is really important to the team. I, I would say we've had a number of coaches. I, I went to strategic coach for about seven years and just learned how to sort of uh, structure my day, focus on the right things, focus on the right clients. That was a great program for me uh, probably 15 years ago, and I did it for for seven years. But I worked with a coach. Her name is Elizabeth Ledoux. She has, uh, she's with Transition Strategists. And the, pri- the work I primarily, primarily started doing with her um, in 2018 was before leaving the old firm. It was about how to create a, um, a really uh, succession-type culture in the old firm, which didn't work out. So it, it was sort of like the pendulum swinging completely in the other direction. We start this new firm, and we're going to start with succession in mind. We're going to start with this um, referral culture. We're going to start with those core values, as I mentioned, and and it was sort of a clean slate. It was easy to, the clients that we worked with that we really valued the relationships were more than willing to come. And that was scary, leaving and and, and sort of it takes a certain amount of bravery to to get started over and Uh figure out, you know, that is this going to work and are they going to follow? And and when they did, uh, that, that meant so much to us. Uh, but it also, those that are there then really want to be there. And then it allowed us to, from there, be really focused on who we want to attract. You mentioned at the beginning, you've added in this next generation advisor yes. who is working with, with younger clients. Can you share that uh, just a little bit more about what that what that role is and how that fits relative to this client segmentation so it's it's a relatively new position too we we've know we've needed it for a little while and that's because uh this our clients kids are very curious they're wanting to learn about uh about investing they want to know you know we we want them to ask their questions of us so we're hoping that years from now, when there's a transfer of wealth, we have the relationship. So, but today, what Maggie's going to be doing is um, sharing things that are relative, relevant, excuse me, to that generation. So her first, her first um, education piece to clients was about when you get your first job, why it's important to contribute to the 401k, even if it's the minimum that the company matches. And then an education, she sat down with some uh, younger clients to talk about just the basics of investing. And so it's that kind of thing. It's, it's, 
Um, and she's going to do a lot of work this year. We, she, she was a summer intern for us. She was exceptional. She's, uh, the daughter of a client and, um, she, when she interned with us, we thought, wow, she really, she has a great, uh, rapport with multiple generations. And we thought that's unique. And, um, so we, engaged her as a, an intern and then promised her the, a position when she finished her, when she got her college degree. And then she immediately uh, started studying for tests and exams and, and jumped right into, she was a student athlete. She'd love to educate student athletes because they're in a position mm-hmm. oftentimes yep. to, um, you know, to be, to make money, have to make money decisions. And so that's how it all started. And then from there, you know, we carved out all of the client's kids that are Gen Z or millennials. And um, she started working on um, her research and um, educational uh, efforts towards uh, things that that that, uh, generation might want to know about. So really, it's not it's not been long it's it's certainly we've got a path for her developing that was pretty easy because she had a focus on things she had things she wanted to focus on so is she doing individual client work because it sounds like this is primarily sort of various one-to-many initiatives like educational articles workshops seminar webinars kinds of things like is it is it all one-to-many or is she getting or expected to get like individual clients that you're charging and serving as well. It's, it's presently a lot of one to many. However, she has had a few general, you know, client meetings that are not, these clients already have accounts. These are children of clients and the clients have been gifting into a UTMA account for years or into a Roth IRA for the kids. So she is going to be having one-on-one relationships, but right now, in order to be a friendly face by the time she goes to do that, she's doing a lot of one-to-many. She's going to do some YouTube shorts and she's going to be doing, she has a, we have, we've sort of laid out a whole, uh, her goals and objectives for 24. So very cool. So, so it is, um, uh, is this a full-time role that she's doing this educational work? Okay. It is because she's got other things. So in the meantime, the things that we did early in her training was she sat with the service team and learned how to open accounts and move money and why do you need this document or here's what a letter of engagement looks like. And then then when she mastered service, she worked with our paraplanner. Uh, here's how you enter information. Here's how you create a performance report. She worked, she did that work so that when she is working with these smaller clients, she's going to do everything. So it takes a little of the burden of the smaller, younger clients off of the service team because she's going to service them as well. Because notwithstanding the ABC delineation, if there are, you know, direct, like, child of client in family relationship tree like those are relationships that you will take outside of asset minimums like that's that's the, that's, that's the space right. you have an exception so this becomes a a way to service and support those clients without the sort of the, the cost as it were of a lead advisor and the compensation 
that it takes and the capacity limitations that a lead advisor has. That's We're right. going to have a different advisor at, at a different stage of career where it, we can manage the costs a little bit more for servicing these clients. And hopefully it's someone that maybe just ha- has more generational rapport with that. Exactly. Clientele. Yes, Michael, that's it. So, so help us understand a little bit more now. You, you, you've highlighted that the kind of the growth engine for the firm is around this kind of transitioning clients that start out on the divorce end and then become traditional financial planning clients. So how, how does that transition work? Like how do you get from we did divorce work to we're trying to get them to come on board as a a, a traditional client post divorce or post engagement? Mm-hmm. Well, once the um once a client's been through their divorce and and have a property settlement agreement, there's you've gotten this document. It's a legal document. It's it's all paragraphs. And it says you're entitled to half of this 401k and you're you get half of the bank account and you get the house. So retitle and in your own name. And um so there's all of these administrative items that have to happen for someone to actually claim what they what they're entitled to from their property settlement agreement. Um, uh, IRAs have one set of rules. 401ks have a different set of rules. Um, Dividing a joint account uh, is relatively straightforward. Maybe you have to divide, uh, equalize IRA accounts. There's, There's multiple steps to getting things to your name. So, so we have a separate uh, function after divorce financial planning, what we call post-divorce financial planning. And post-divorce simply means the process is done and now we bring in our operations manager, will help if they if they want our help, by the way. And if we agree that they're going to be a good, you know, that they're going to be a right fit client for financial planning services, then we're going to support them in all of that. And that's what I was sharing earlier. If they're a relatively small client, they just have a 401k, we, we have someone we can refer them to. We don't want them left alone with this legal document without any support as to how to get these assets that you've just argued for um, in this equitable, hopefully equitable distribution. So we work with them post-divorce. We also created a nonprofit called Done With Divorce, and that was designed to have a lot of, um, not necessarily do it yourself, but there's a lot of information. We have invited attorneys to speak, uh, mortgage lenders to speak, estate attorneys to speak, um, and we we do we have some educational pieces on there as to what happens next. So you're done with the divorce, then what? So that's our pro- nonprofit called Done with Divorce, and we do a lot of um, just pro bono advice that from people that come through done with divorce, just tell them, Hey, find a good estate attorney, or here's a recommendation. It's not the work. It's just, um, making sure that they're cared for, but when it's complicated and when they're going to be a financial planning client, we do that work. We establish the accounts. We go to the 401k provider and find out if the quadro, which is this legal document was provided by the, um, the family law attorney, et cetera. So we're deeply involved in the division. And then we call it next chapter when they've, that's all done. And then we're now starting this next chapter in their financial journey. So in a similar manner to, you know, you, you do the, the CDFA analysis work in the divorce process and and charge for it, this 
post-divorce financial planning, like implementation of the property settlement, do you do you charge planning fees or hourly fees for this on the on the divorce side of the business, or is this considered the like the the onboarding and account moving that we do on the financial planning end? Because any time we've got a new AUM client, there's usually paperwork and transfers to do. Right, and and the the answer is. More often, it's it's done as a financial planning arrangement. We start that process after the, we have a formal, the divorce financial planning relationship or, or engagement has ended, and then we engage in traditional financial planning relationship. So that that's often the case. There are some cases where a client has said, um, you know, I really, I love my financial advisor, which is great. And I want to continue to work with them, but I want you to help us with this piece. In that case, we will do it at an hourly. So we help, the, we help and we work with, we, we just did this with a Morgan Stanley broker and help them who, who doesn't, who isn't, you know, involved in our uh, divorce financial planning. So we helped with the division of the assets and worked with them to get the client where they needed to be. And we did that on an hourly basis because that was not going to be a, financial planning client for us. So I guess I'm trying to say is how, how do you stay engaged from the like the CDFA divorce analysis work until this post-divorce stage? I'm 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 certainly no divorce expert, but my understanding is like it could be months yeah, from it be if a, it's a messy a divorce from right. when you initially do the like we did the but we did the financial householding and budget analysis to help you determine what a reasonable support agreement would be and made some recommendations on on the property settlement uh, until you actually get to the divorce is set it's finalized the legal paperwork signed uh, now we need to start moving money so how how do you how do you stay connected and engaged? from when you initially do the the CDFA divorce consulting work until they're they're able to become a client. Yeah, that's a great question. Um it, it varies uh like anything else to I me mean, there are certain clients that we just touch base. There's there's definitely a, a again a workflow that is 30 days out, 60 days out, 90 days out that's just a a check-in. Um and that at a minimum from, from the point that they engage, but also to the point that we last did work, there might be a 30 day check-in 60 days, 90 days. It, you're right. It could be a year. It could be longer than a year. Um, which again, back all the way back to when we weren't intentional about the charging and the hours and all that's part of what made that doable because we might not have work to do again for six more months or maybe it's being revisited some period of time down the road but uh yeah just again relying on a workflow to um to to just jog us to remind us that we're we should touch base and see what's happening Sometimes it's just an email back, nothing going on, you know, next court date is such and such. So then maybe we'd put in a reminder to check in after the court date. So you also mentioned, I think like early on several years ago, it was you and Cecile doing all this. Now there's a six person team with multiple CDFAs and and two that are doing this full time. So how, how do you get to the point where you have other CDFAs on the team that you're, 
you know, comfortable can do it at the level that you've been doing it and serving clients the way that you've been serving them. Yeah, I, I would say um, the the two that do it exclusively, just again, more time in it, more experience. Uh, one is highly analytical. One is a former CPA. So these are number crunchers. These are people that are these. Uh, this is Jamie and Alina, and they're very. Um, they have a lot of experience. Jamie came to us. We we met her years ago at a CDFA conference, and. Um, she was just, uh, again, it was sort of like a culture clash uh, in her former firm. And she, we, we just were meeting for lunch and said, well, why not join us? You could do that work with us. So it was, you know, maybe that sounds a little less <laughs> intentional, but it fit right in with the growth and, and the what we were looking to do with the team. So uh, ex- we have an experienced um a couple of people there doing the work. And I would say the way that the way that it is now, given that they spend their time and, and again, they're compensated for the hours that they spend largely, that's their revenue source. So when, when a client, when an attorney refers a client to the firm, if it's somebody that we can have one of the two dedicated CDFAs work with, that's our first choice. We, we, we pass it on because again, that work wasn't, it, it's still interesting. I like to stay involved. If someone was referred to me, I love to sit in on the client meetings and understand where they are, what's important to them, what's happening, because then maybe I'm going to be in a better position to work with them when it's all over. Not, not just for that reason, you know, but it is, helpful. So these, these women have experience. Um, the other advisors on the team do as well at this point. I mean, divorce is a big part of the practice, even if, um, even if you're not doing the divorce financial planning, likely if you're in the firm, you're working with someone that came from our, that, you know, originally was divorced and and worked with us on the divorce financial planning side. It's a big part of the practice. So then I'm, I'm, I'm also, wondering in that direction you 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 had said earlier like is that at the at the very beginning like your your focus your specialization is 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 women who manage the money for the family right often from a divorced path maybe widowed maybe never married uh i i feel like our industry collectively has been debating for many years this framing of are 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 women a niche? Like, can you specialize in fifty one percent of the population? Yeah, isn't that funny? I I don't see it at that as a niche at all. I simply think it's and for a long time, I think I was secretly grateful that people thought that you had to treat it like a niche <laughs> because it isn't. It's these are just these are people who are making financial decisions maybe sometimes very critical times in their lives and they need support. And, um, I think women are great at asking for, maybe not always asking for help, but they seek advice. Women, I don't know. We're just not, uh, my, my experience, women aren't afraid to say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not sure that, how does that important to me? Why, you know, why do I need to know this? And, uh, you know, it just, the women are really, um, by nature, I think they're, they're open to, to being coached and, um, very coachable. And, and again, in some cases, really grateful to have someone partner with them when they're going through something tough in their lives. 
so how do you define that as different from a, a niche? Like in your mind, what what's a niche that what you're saying is? Yeah, I not. think the fact that women getting divorced and and doing that work is definitely more niche work. Um, but working with women in general, I mean, some of the, many of those women that I said, or they just manage the money in the family, they're just happily married couples, and the, the wife's taking the role as like household CFO. They're just managing the money, uh, and it's not to say we don't work with men. We have. Um, you know, uh, happily married couples and 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 men that are uh, clients, but the maybe because we're women, I don't know. A lot of you know of the of the the firm, there's only three men. So maybe because there's so many women, we're attracting women. I'm not sure, but uh, I would just say I I don't view that as a niche so much as just who we serve. Just the same way, maybe well. I don't know. Maybe that makes it a niche. I'm not sure. <laughs> so what what surprised you the most about building your building your advisory business over the years? Um, I, I don't think it was as complicated as I thought it was in my head. Um, when I started m- many years ago, I, I worked. My mentor had a goal, like a, a goal beside the financial having, you know, giving financial advice. It was, he wanted to employ his, he had three daughters. He wanted to employ his future sons-in-law. He wanted people in the industry. He wanted to give people opportunities and, and chances. And, you know, I had zero experience and no financial background. And and it was simply because when I met him, it was a, a great conversation and dialogue. I got to know him over time. And uh, when he invited me, I had no idea what this industry was all about. And yet today, sort of full circle. I feel like, who who can we introduce? This is a fabulous industry. This is a great, you know, I, I have two kids. I raised my kids while working full time. I mean, this is a, a very flexible industry. This is a very, you know, I, I want to be welcoming. I want to give people the same opportunities. So what I found was that's not that complicated. You, you, you meet somebody with a, you know, a real will to serve and a great personality and, um, and, and a curiosity about how they could be involved. And they're highly motivated to, to perform and to participate and to get better. And again, the whole idea of creating success. I mean, there's, there's a certain mindset, I think that, um, that people have that when, when you're given an opportunity, you kind of, you don't want to blow the opportunity, right? You want to, you want to make that person, I, I find everyone sort of uh, eager to, to contribute. So I, uh, I, I am a little bit struck as you were relating the story of your mentor. And I recognize this may be kind of sign of the times and how the industry is, has changed. But if I heard right, like he had three daughters, and the question was how his future sons-in-law could get opportunities in the business, yes, not yeah. how his three daughters could no, get that's opportunities true. This in was, the business. This was, keep in mind, like 1987. So, when okay. I <laughs> okay. so yeah, consider the time. And by the way, I think his daughters are involved. He still has a very successful practice. Good for them. Showed yeah, him a little yeah. something. <laughs> so you're right. Isn't that funny? I didn't. I never thought about that. But although that I was given a great opportunity, and uh, and again, I think that's the idea. If you, if if the sort of the right type of person comes along and you give them the opportunity, I feel like they want to prove you right. So then I I'm wondering that context, right? As as noted, the 
well, the industry is very male dominant now. It was even more painfully so in the late 1980s. Mm. Uh, what brought you into the industry to persevere through that yeah. environment where <laughs> well, your yeah. mentor was looking for opportunities for his future sons-in-laws and not his daughters. <laughs> and maybe that, you know, it, it, and again, good, great guy. And frankly, probably what I started in the wirehouse, I started in what was Shearson Lehman Brothers back in the day. And um, yes, there was one of one woman advisor uh, that again, worked with my mentor. And so it was it was a, an interesting environment. Again, I was really protected. I, I have to say, working, you know, the constant theme for me is team. I started on a team. I got to work with him, with my mentor and the team that he was already developing. And then when I left the Pittsburgh area to follow my husband to Northern Virginia, again, it was switching branches and working with another team, and then going independent with that team. I mean, there was I, I have had this. I have a real um, conviction that the the whole is better than the sum of the parts. So again, I had an opportunity to do just one little thing. When I first got licensed, all I did was sit on the phone. I don't know, this is before like discretion in accounts. I would sit on the phone and explain why someone should sell one international fund and buy a different one. <laughs> that was pretty much, you know, so I got to have conversations. I got to learn how to provide this one little wedge of advice and um, so different than how we do it today. But, you know, it was, it was a neat opportunity. And I loved when people ask questions, maybe I didn't know, maybe I, you know, as I got, you know, better prepared for those conversations, it was extremely rewarding. So I it's love when people ask questions and I didn't know. I feel like, so are, is yes, I love imposter that. syndrome not a thing for you? <laughs> I, I mean, I think I'm pretty honest. I just, uh, yeah, at, at that point, I mean, as young as I was, who was, you know, at, at that point, I was in my 20s. And and this is what actually I shared with Maggie, our, our youngest, newest advisor, who's going to be working with the, the um, you know, the, the next generation of clients. Um, you, you don't have to know it all. You just have to know who to go to to find the answers, you know? So, and that imposter sy syndrome, I think that's real for all of us for, for for a long time until, because there's just no substitute for experience. So you have to go through a lot of experiences, right? Before you <laughs> feel pretty confident that, uh, but it's not to say you wouldn't get great advice from someone brand new in the industry. It's, I just think it's easier to get that advice when it's been, you know, a uh, through a team effort, like by committee, we we we've decided we're doing something, and uh, you know, much like back in the day, would I make that call about one thing? You could pretty be pretty confident about sharing this one idea. So yeah, you don't have to be the expert in everything, and you you cannot know something. You can just you just know a lot about this one thing at the beginning. So what was the low point on this journey for you? Uh, it was the decision to leave the old team to, to make that change. That was tough. I, I really wanted that whole transition to work out and, um, hence the coaching that I got and, uh, lots of advice from people I trust in the industry. And, you know, it was always plan A to stay and have this successful transition. And when that didn't happen and pivoting to plan B and feeling like you just, there's uncertainty with that. You don't know how it's going to all work out. And as it turned out, it, it, it's, it was the best decision 
along this journey. It was the best decision to start the firm and and uh, with the people that are there, the team that we have, and uh, the clients that we serve. It's been great. So can you give us a, a little bit more context of just what was what was the setup with the, I guess, like, what was the setup with the old team in the first place? And, and what wasn't working for you from your perspective, at least that you. Yeah. Had to, um, had to and, and again, I bet you this is not too uncommon. So uh, uh, there was uh, the, the old team had the original advisor and I came to work with her. And over time, I just developed more client relationships. I started managing the team I started, the the clients I worked with were the A clients. Um, the clients I was attracting were bigger clients, and um, and yet there was no formality to a partnership or a path to ownership. Uh, the the advisors that I work with today, the the associate advisors, didn't even have an opportunity for ownership. Didn't have a seat at the table. No decision making capabilities. It just became very. Uh, it was all sort of top down. There was no collaboration. There was no opportunity. Even though it, it took a long time to get to that place. Once I was there, I was. It was very challenging to imagine just staying in that place. Just being. Uh, and, and not an ego thing, but a uh, hard to to develop all this and then have no confidence that it was going to be, you know, that there was going to be a successful transition to to uh, a practice that looks like what we have today, where everybody would have a seat at the table. Because in essence, you were you were growing in your career. You were expanding the team, moving up market to more valuable relationships driving more revenue and in the same kind of you know employee role that you'd been without yeah without even though it was to a, say like if, if i'm making a bigger piece of this pie do i get to have a part of this pie at some point exactly it wasn't even an unfair revenue share it wasn't there was nothing like the relationship was the the business aspects of it were equitable it was the the other things, the soft things, it was, it was, uh, how it's tough, how to, how we manage the relationships that we don't, um, that it, that we take a focus that's more on the planning and the client need and not on the product. It's just a different, it was just a, a different approach. And I felt like, I was having success with that approach and then it was, but it wasn't something that we could adopt across the team because, because the founder wasn't on board with that. We're moving in a different direction and and with some resistance. So that was very tough. So the transition to launch your own firm was the first time you had to go through the like ownershipy, (laughs) do I actually like, set up a firm and own a firm and yes, find the lawyers yeah. that I need and all that's that right. stuff. That's right. That's exactly right. So how was that well, transition? We, we actually had a, a client who has a, a, a lawyer client of ours who, who has a partner in his firm who works with a lot of financial advisors in establishing their ownership structure and operating agreement. So we had someone we 
through someone we knew and trusted, we got to uh, someone who could help us with that. And we, we were, it was the first thing we did was, was to make sure that we had something in place for that defined our, our ownership that defined how we were going to operate the decisions that we make as, as partners and how that was going to go. And um, so our, our future planning, our, our planning from the beginning was all about what the firm would look like in the future and how, what we were trying to accomplish and um, where we want the firm, you know, like 50 year decisions as they call them, right? We were trying to make these really big, important decisions right from the beginning. I, I would just say the, the one thing that, um, that, we might have done, we might, you know, again, I think this will evolve over time, but we were so, we, the pendulum swung so far in the other direction in terms of we wanted everyone to have a say on everything. And we were, we were definitely trying to make it so much more collaborative, almost at like the detriment, because now it's like, we all have to decide if we're, if we're buying you know, branded merchandise or something. It, we, we have to get that. We have to get better about decision-making. That's something we can improve on. And, uh, and, and that every partner doesn't have to be part of everything. But we were so, we, we so much wanted it to be different than the, than the last environment that I think we swung a little far in the other direction. Oh, interesting. So you, the, you got like founded, you know, born from the ashes of yes. we're going to be a hyper collaborative decision-making yes, exactly. environment. <laughs> Except now it's gotten larger and there's 13 people and four partners and it's slowing down a little to have to have every partner sign off on every decision. Exactly. Exactly. So how did you get everyone lined up in the in the first place as you were formulating this? I think you said like it was you and three people who were going to be partners. Like the four of you are doing these operating agreements, 50-year decisions, as you put it. Yeah, right. uh, so just practically speaking, like how do you get everybody synced up on 50-year decisions? Well, again, I mean, we may have to – it's only been five years and we want to make some modifications. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we thought – but no, I think we all were motivated uh, to we, – we worked together for, in the case of Cecile and I at that point um, – a decade, Joe and I, two decades. So we've already had a long working relationship, Eric, uh, seven years at that point. So we, we, we already had this trust between us. We had, we all knew what we wanted and some things were more important to one partner than another. So we just went with it. If it was important to you, then, then we wanted to identify that and make sure we, we addressed it, dealt with it, included it if it needed to be, um, so I think that it, there was a lot of trust between us before we ever left. And so establishing the new firm was, um, wasn't, wasn't a big lift. Once so, the clients agreed to come, like, you know, again, uh, people have been through it. When you leave and you invite clients to join you at a new firm and you're starting from scratch because of all the rules, you take nothing with you, <laughs> right? Other than their name, address, and a few things. You 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 just hope that they're on board because it's some work. It's it's some work for the clients to make the move. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10, 20 years ago in your in your career? What would you go back and teach younger I would, you? I would I would teach younger me that it's 
so much more about relationships than we all like maybe identify. It's not what what you know about the industry or what you know about a product. It's it's what you know about that person. It's a people business. So what other advice would you give younger, like newer advisors coming into the industry today? Well, our our young advisor, we reach and I were recently having a conversation and she was a little uh, nervous about this idea of leaping into giving advice and that sort of thing. And, and what I shared with her is that, you know, the old adage, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. But also what I was saying to her was you're, you, we know so much, just what we absorb every day, uh, being in the office, in the industry, every, every bit of collateral, every time we listen to a Kitsis podcast, we know so much more than we give ourselves credit for. So what I was sharing with her is when you're in front of a new young client, they, you already know far more. You're the expert. You just have to believe it. I like that. You already are the expert. You just have to yeah, believe it. Exactly. So as, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the word success uh, means very different things to, to different people. And yeah. so you're on this wonderful path of success. I mean, the, the business is 500 million plus and 13 team members. I think you know, the business is successful by any traditional measure. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I think that my filter for success is always wanting to make sure that the people that mean the most to me, my family, my very close family, my, my husband and kids, but also my parents who are now deceased. I have 11 siblings. When I, maybe that's why team was so important. Um, but w whatever my filter is, it's always, uh, would they be, would they be proud of this? Am, am I doing something that, that would, that makes a difference? Very cool. Is it something that makes a difference? Uh, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Diane, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you. It's been a real privilege. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.